Well, thank you so much for the privilege of uh, being here. I'm grateful to Kevin and his invitation many, many weeks ago and the privilege of uh, coming back to KBF. Um, um, it's lovely to see so many of the, uh, I was going to say, old faces. Several people said to us, you haven't changed. Mary and I respond with that by saying, you guys need your eyes tested because we have photos that prove we have changed. <laughs> but thank you for the privilege of being here. If you look at the outline, you'll see I'm following in the uh, Reformation tradition of the, uh, the solas, the alones, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's just three out of the five. But what I really want to do in that context is to, um, is to uh, focus on the amazing transformation, which is in the introduction of your outline. Friends, none of us likes bad news. We're often thrown by it. Whether it's the loss of one's job, financial pressure with no way out, broken relationships in a family, the death of a loved one. There are dozens of major things that throw us. I've often said to friends in this context that every one of us, every Christian among us, will have at least one great big question mark hanging over their heads to the final day. Not because God has lost control, but there are some things that we just don't understand and need to be patient as we wait. A number of you know that, that uh, I was diagnosed some years ago with bowel cancer. I was devastated. As I left the medical centre of RPA Hospital and walked up Carillion Avenue, Newtown, to our home at Moore College, I said to myself, Cancer comes to other people, but not to me. When I reached home, I dumped my bad news onto Mary and she copped it. It just all came out. Over the next months, I had chemotherapy, radiotherapy, an operation, further chemo, and then ongoing medical care for another five years. The things that still needed sorting out. My surgeon said to me when I first uh, saw him, you have a very good GP who diagnosed your situation so early. That doctor, humanly speaking, had saved my life. The bad news led to certain steps that I took and the result, then at least, was a good one. Now this is precisely the sort of thing that God has done according to Ephesians 2. We are told that God does not simply leave the world he has created in its desperate plight caused by humanity's sin and rebellion. Sure, the Bible does speak about a world under judgment, but it also trumpets forth God's mighty salvation. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a God who saves, and he has done this in the death and resurrection of his Son. 
Friends, there are three main points I want to uh, make here in this particular um, sermon, which I believe is the way that Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is divided up. I want to look, first of all, at the way we were, verses 1 to 3. Then, the next step is, what has, has God done? That's the magnificent change, verses 4 to 7. Then finally, 8 to 10, a nice, neat package of three, what have we become? God's new creation. Each one of these areas, 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 10, needs to be taken seriously. Miss one of them and we fail to understand God's purposes. Find out that we enjoy one of them more than the other three, same problem. We need to know the real issues. The way we were, let me read to you verses 1 to 3 uh, and hear it for you to hear it again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There were three strikes against us, friends. Three strikes. The first one is a state of death. Paul is addressing the Ephesian Christians, probably sending a circular letter around to maybe seven churches. So we have the copy that went to Ephesus. There were probably half a dozen others. We're not sure about that. But this is a letter that's got a blank in some of the references. And the words en Ephesus or in Ephesus is the one that we have, suggesting that there were others. And Paul tells the readers of this letter that before they became Christians, and remember Paul ministered in Ephesus between two and three years, before they became Christians, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. They were spiritually dead. They were out of a relationship with God and alienated from him. That was strike number one. Secondly, in verse three, as a result of being spiritually dead, men and women outside of Christ are under divine judgment. Now please note that Paul is not a preacher who is throwing bricks at others. He includes himself, and this is in an amazing way. He says, as for you, that is you Gentiles who have now become Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But now he speaks about, and we too, were in a similar position. He says here, like the rest, we, that is Jews who have become Christians, were by nature deserving of wrath. What has happened? It's an amazing statement. Paul and his Jewish contemporaries who become Christians were in the same dreadful situation 
as Gentiles who've become Christians. They were on the same level before they were converted. Now this is an amazing statement. If you read chapter 3 of Philippians when you go home, you'll see that Paul boasts about his inherited privileges as a Jew. He lists, I think, four of them there. Then he goes on to add the three extra things where he outstripped his Jewish contemporaries. He was at the top of the tree. That's incredible. Now, if you regard Judaism as the highest religion of all, apart from Christianity, then Paul was right at the top of the tree. Inherited privileges. He was a true blue Jew. And he had three other things as well. And yet he says, as far as God is concerned, before he was converted, he too, like the rest, were deserving of wrath. This is an amazing statement. In one blow, the apostle is saying that outside of Christ, there are no ultimate differences. Men and women are dead in trespasses and sins, and they are under divine judgment. Now, lots of people in our society today compare themselves with others and think they have no need for the living God because they're better than someone else. I don't live in Long Bay Jail is what some would say. Others would say, I'm not guilty of this particular thing. A top businessman might say, I pay honest taxes. Boy, that's increasingly rare. But he could say it. That does not make him better than others. Paul is in one blow saying that the very best of Judaism and the most righteous person who regards themselves as, if not perfect, then a lot better than all the others, that there's no ultimate difference or distinction. And why is this? Because, friends, as you know from the teaching that has come from this pulpit over the years, that Adam, in Adam, sin came into the world and death spread to all men and women because all had sinned. The result of one person's trespass led to condemnation for all human beings. And there's no point us blaming Adam. He's the cause of all the headaches that I've got because we know in our hearts of hearts, that we fail as well. And God can rightly ping us for the things we've done, let alone what we've inherited in Adam. The result is that all are by nature under judgment. Struck number two. Dead in trespasses and sins first, under judgment. There is a third one here in verses two and three. Many people claim in our society today that their lives are free. Folk in particular, but they're not the only ones, can live it out as long as they are true to themselves, regardless of the consequences of being yourself has its effects on others. We've had a bit of publicity in the recent newspapers, haven't we, over the last week or two. I don't need to mention names. People think they are free. And as long as you are true to yourself, your inner being, 
You're not being pressured by what's on around you. You're okay. But Ephesians 2 tells us that our lives prior to becoming Christian are marked by an awful slavery. There are forces over which we have control. The result is that men and women cannot respond neutrally to life's decisions. Paul mentions three things. He describes these three in terms of what has been called a three-stranded cable. The first is, according to the ways of the world, we are all influenced by those. These refer to values that are opposed to God. They dominate non-Christian society and hold people in bondage. Wherever men and women are being used and abused, they're being dishumanised, we can detect the values of this age, this world. Paul's words refer to the pressures of society. You think of the way that the, the pendulum swings back and forth from the various things that are interesting. Our attitudes, our habits, our preferences, where we shop, the sorts of things we buy. An Apple Phone 5S is out of date. That's the one I've got. It's way behind. If I go into the Telstra shop at uh, Top Ride, they'll say, that's out of date, you need a new one. I'm under the pressures of society. Our attitudes, habits, preferences. So the NIV, the New English Bible here, when you followed the ways of this world. That is the first strand of the cable that men and women outside of Christ are bound by. The world. The second is the devil, believe it or not. We are not only subject to the bondage of this present evil age, we are also inspired and empowered by personal evil forces. Paul is not saying here that men and women are demon-possessed. No, he talks about a second hostile influence as a, that of a powerful supernatural being who rules, called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's the evil one, the god of this age, the devil himself. He and his lieutenants have a powerful influence over many. That is the second strand of the cable. And the third one is the flesh. The Apostle Paul here speaks about that cable which holds men and women outside of Christ in bondage and that third strand is the flesh. He's referring to a lifestyle in which men and women are gratified by the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Three strands. The world, a natural one. The devil, a supernatural one. And the flesh, an internal one. All three are there together. The little boy who was chastened by his mother for his behaviour said, Mummy, the devil made me do it. But what about the world? And what about the flesh? There are three strands to the cable. So the source of these 
these uh, evil tendencies is internal, the flesh, external, the world, supernatural, the evil one. Now some people might say, hey listen, Paul's a bit over the top here. This picture is far too negative. It just isn't true. Many would respond by saying human beings are made in the image of God and so much that we can do is worthy and admirable. What about our wealth, our power? What about our architecture? The magnificent music that if you tune into the right radio channel, 929, you'll hear it. Fame, learning, artistic uh, achievements. What about our physical abilities and technology? We may not have got so many golds at, uh, um, in the north somewhere, in South Korea at the moment, but what about our, that, our achievements, etc.? Do they not count for nothing? But Paul is here addressing moral, ethical and above all spiritual matters, our failure to honour and glorify God. The issue is not human achievements, which can be very great, God's gracious gifts. They are evidence of his enormous and wonderful common grace. No, it's our total inability to relate to him as the living God that is in view. The picture is black in those first three verses. But fortunately, there are seven other wonderful verses that tell us what God has done and what we have become. If verses one to three were the last words on the subject, then it would be very disheartening. But Paul joyfully announces the magnificence that God has brought about. Let me read to you verses four to seven. But, the point made earlier, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on in verse 7 to speak, might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What is it that has motivated God to act so wonderfully in our desperate situation? where Paul speaks of his mercy. Mercy is an expression of love and generosity that's not expected. Mercy is given to a person who's in a hopeless and helpless, desperate situation. God's mercy is part of his motivation. We're also told his love is related to this. The great love with which he loved us. And the particular point of the loving us here has to do with Jesus' death on the cross. The passage goes on to speak about the riches of his kindness as well. God has acted in an incredible way. And what that shows is that he has not left creation. He has not given over to sin and death and ultimate judgment so that it destroys No, his mighty action, friends is motivated by his incredible love and mercy. You might say to me, okay, you've said there are three strikes against us. Has God dealt with those three strikes against us? And the answer is yes. Let's look at it more closely. 
In verses 5 and 6, we are told this. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us within the heavenly realms. God has taken the initiative because of his incredible love for us and acted in this way. Now, friends, I want to say to you on the basis of John 3.16 that there is not a single person in this building who is not loved by God. You may feel rotten. You may think you've botched things up again. You may say that your relatives keep telling you that sort of thing or your boss at work leads you to believe that. There may be 50 other different people telling you this. But I want to say to you on the basis of what is written here that God loves you as part of his world whether you have responded to the gospel or not. He desires that none should perish, that all should come to repentance, and the steps that he has taken to achieve that are absolutely incredible. What has he done? We were dead, so he gave us new life in Christ, of himself and his fellow Christians. We're in, we were um, uh, under judgment, and he has dealt with that as well. He has expressed mercy to us. It's also, we said that we were in some sense bondage to evil powers. But we're told in this page here that we have been raised with Christ when we are curted so that the devil cannot destroy the Christian. You know what he set out to do with Job. He said that Job only followed God for what he got out of it. He wasn't a true believer. Again and again, the devil threw everything at Job. I'm glad that I haven't had to go through what Job has been through. And I guess the rest of us would say the same thing. But God made sure that Job got to the end in spite of the hellish things that happened to him. Yes, under the sovereignty of God, under the control of God, but nevertheless, God brought Job through that. His mighty action described here is for men and women who are in Christ. And his motivation is because of his great love for men and women. Please don't write yourself off as being unable to be changed. If God could convert a Saul of Tarsus, who was the Nazi lieutenant that ordered the execution of killing Stephen, lieutenant that pulled the trigger, if God is able to save a Saul of Tarsus in what he did, he is able to save me and you. Well, the marvellous goal of this is that in, in the ages to come, for billions of years, those of us who have joined, been linked with the Lord Jesus, are able to praise him for his grace and kindness for all eternity.
what we were, what has God done, so finally, what, what has become of us? We are God's new creation. Verse 8 tells us we've been saved by grace ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. It's a gift, so we receive it by faith. This gift of God refers not only to being saved, but also the very ability to believe. You may feel, I'm not a Christian. I don't know what to do next. I'm, I don't know what to do. Well, may I urge you to ask what I asked? Knelt down by my bed and say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand much about this, but I want you to give me that robe of righteousness, that forgiveness. Friends, it took me six months after that night before I knew anything about the Holy Spirit. I was a slow learner in so many different ways. I, held, I asked the Lord Jesus to give me that robe to come into my life. I didn't understand a great deal about it, but that didn't matter. So finally, and with this I close, under this last heading, what have we become? The Bible here tells us that we are a new creation in Christ Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Those who come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus are transformed and are a new creation. And as a result of that transformation, God has prepared for each believer works to do, not works as merit, as Catholicism said back at the Reformation, not works or faith plus works that gets me into a relationship with God. No, faith and grace and Christ alone. And then because I am a new creation, then the good works that God has prepared for me to walk in follow. God has brought us into his family. He's made us his sons and daughters. He wants us to bear the family likeness. He wants us to reflect the character of God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus. And the good works that we are to do, empowered by his Holy Spirit, our attitudes, our behaviours, our actions, reflect what Jesus is really like. Friends, this has got to be one of the best passages in the whole of the Bible. There are 66 books, all of which are inspired, but I can tell you it's one of my favourite. Why? It tells me what I once was, was, hopeless and helpless. It tells me about God's great love and mercy to me. It tells me that I've been made a new creation in the Lord Jesus, and therefore there are good things that he wants me to do. May I urge you, to take heart if you've already crossed the line and are a new creation in Christ. To press on, it's really worth it. But if you haven't crossed the line, to take the offer that God gives and become a brand new creation in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not simply created the world, wound it up like an eight-day clock and then just let it run. We thank you that you have stepped in. And after the sin of Adam and Eve and the effects that that had, you have sent your Son to take the punishment in our place. You have shown your incredible mercy and kindness to us who were helpless and hopeless. We thank you that men and women in the Lord Jesus are a new creation and we pray that that may be true of this congregation and each member for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.